0: Good morning and welcome to the Medical Sports Nutrition Podcast with me, Dr. Andy Matheson. We're going to run through some different journal articles this week and then just touch on an old favourite that uh, I think is a real good feel-good message for any of our patients. So, the first article that we are going to touch on um, was in sports medicine. It was called Challenging Aspects of Research on the Influence of the Menstrual Cycle and Ornal Contraceptives on Physical Performance, and it was a commentary piece. And it was nice, it's a little kind of rundown of the common errors that we see in the research articles that are starting to come out looking at what is the impact of the menstrual cycle or different uh, sort of hormonal contraceptives on your physical performance. Now, not really much more to say about other than that. The only thing I was a little disappointed, and I am keeping my eye out, because I think when someone does finally do an article on this, it will be hugely useful, was just about uh, menstrual cycle apps. So one of the comments that they make is uh, talking about hormone determination and not getting confused by the hormone changes in sort of combined contraceptives, single hormone contraceptives, and then the normal cycle, and how difficult it is unless you do a, sort of a fairly specific set uh, of timed blood tests to know at what point of the cycle patients are at. Now, five years ago, I, I would have agreed with this completely, but I think now most of us who um, sort of work with uh, women, either uh, advising on contraception choice or fertility choices or in the nutrition sphere, are advising on um, which stage of the cycle. Uh, someone might be in to adjust either their training load or their carbohydrate intake. Actually, the apps seem really good and very, very um, accurate. No mention of the apps in here, which is what I really want. I want to know which are the best ones. What have you based it on? Are there certain groups of patients, um, such as younger Female athletes or slightly older female athletes, where which app will will, th- will be better for for patients with, say, polycystic uh, ovarian syndrome? What's the impact of the apps? the The next paper is also from sports medicine, and this was called "What is the effect of paracetamol ingestion on exercise performance? Current findings and future direction." So again, a, a, another review article um it, it came out with some useful conclusions things that i wasn't particularly aware of um so endurance performance if taken prior it seems to improve cycling to exhaustion uh trials and seems to have an, an enhancing effect on repeated sprint performance and there were sort of as you'd expect three or four smallish Trials for each of those, and it, it seemed to suggest that, that they were reasonable quality, although very small, trials. Uh, then just touch uh, touches on side effects, mostly just looking at the impact of taking too much paracetamol. Um, It's an odd one, because when you work in elite sports, you find yourself gradually drifting into the normalisation of taking non-steroid or some paracetamol. It's a bit like having a child. All of a sudden, regular doses of cowpaw become normal, rather than something that's a bit unusual. Um, So... it it did feel a little bit like this was normalising the use of a medication. Um, And the thing that I needed to know from it, uh, so there's some articles suggesting that some things that reduce post-training inflammation will also reduce post-training adaptation. So we all are aware of the kind of possible effect of vitamin C, a possible impact of non-steroidals in doing that. They didn't touch on that at all, and they really needed to, so uh, that was a shame. I think we can generally assume from the mechanism of action that, yes, you can see why people will use paracetamol if their aim is not to enhance training adaptation, but just to get out there for that day's game. So the next article, I'll just pull it up, was to do with sleep. So it was in JAMA Internal Medicine. Uh, it was called "Effect of Sleep Extension on Objectively Assessed Energy Intake Among Adults with Overweight in Real-Life Settings. Now, reading that title, it still doesn't make sense to me. I, I, yeah, uh, I think we can all guess what it means. Uh, first author Tasali, uh, last author was uh, Sholala. Um, and this was really interesting uh, and initially maybe not so useful for uh, so the performance side of things. Essentially what they found in a sort of trial of 80 athletes was that if you push them through some sleep uh, intervention work to go higher than their six less than six and a half hours per night sleep they will reduce their day of the energy intake so the first thing that probably doesn't sort of pass over to most athletes is I don't know too many that get less than six and a half hours a night um, or in a day most athletes um, do better than that Um, what actually was oddly quite Useful for the for many of our patient populations is the um, the BMIs were sort of twenty five to thirty, and the age was twenty to forty. So we're not talking that of morbidly obese, not people that um, might be on medication for their obesity, struggling with it, and actually uh, sort of probably where a lot of uh, weekend warriors would fall. Um, And so the Idea that I can say with confidence to um, people that are saying, Look, um, I've had a bad uh, Christmas, I want to get back into my sport, it's starting to get light outside. I used to do a lot of training um, and now I'm trying to build up, but it's not working, I'm getting injured, I'm getting ill. Um, normally, I, I will touch on sleep, but as well as saying, Look, you need to sleep to stop getting unwell. You need to sleep to stop getting injured. Remember that you you get fitter through recovery, not through training. I'll add in the fact that if you can increase your sleep for up from whatever you're having by a couple of hours, there's a good chance you're going to lose weight. So. Um, nice study, well done, interesting, and actually probably more um, useful for my patient's uh, population than, than I'd initially thought when I saw the title. So the next one. So this uh, was called a pilot sequential multiple assigned randomised trial protocol for developing an adaptive coding in terms round- 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 mobile application for athletes to improve carbohydrate PRI behavior. Now this was always what this was published in a clinical trials communication. so it was actually just talking about how they were going to run this trial. So it is from the, this Liverpool John Moore's group, um, and I will be very interested to see what they are going to, to do and come with, come out with. And, and if I get any more details from anyone I know there. I will let you know because a app to imp- to tell you how to periodize your carbohydrate would be a bit of a game changer um, if it worked. I think it would allow people to uh, periodize their carbohydrate work and presumably link up to the the training program without sitting on an Excel spreadsheet and um uh, slowly and carefully going through and making sure you're not going to put them in a uh, sort of relative energy deficiency. So uh, no no results yet, but I'm very curious. Um, whilst we're on the uh, curiosities bit, the other thing that I saw was um, we had mentioned last time about this large vital study, and uh, it, it put out that one about depression and and it felt slightly unsatisfactory because it didn't really seem to include all the data you'd expect. And and what I suggested was that this is going to be one of these large studies where there is a lot of research that comes out of everyone's publishing their little bit of that from it. Uh, And yes, lo lo and behold, in, in the BMJ this week, there's the Research article vitamin D and marine omega 3 fatty acid supplementations and incident autoimmune disease. So, this data is going to be used by lots of people, and we'll keep seeing more of these things come out. Uh, And essentially, this was self reported um, rheumatoid arthritis, PMR, autoimmune thyroid disease, psoriasis, uh, and uh, other autoimmune diseases found in this sort of cohort of the vital trial where they were giving people vitamin D and omega 3 or just vitamin D or just omega 3 Uh, and what they found was that vitamin D seemed to reduce the incidence of autoimmune disease by 22% and the omega 3 fatty acids with or without vitamin D also caused reduction but wasn't statistically significant. So again it's it's back to that oh, what on earth is vitamin d or well, it's a hormone and the more and more we read around it the more and more we realize it's involved in many different things now we're all very comfortable now with the idea that vitamin d is involved in the immune system so the idea that it's involved in sort of dysregulation of the immune system or something going wrong with the immune system when we're aware of its key role in T-cells isn't too surprising. Um, But I have to say I'd never really had vitamin D on my to-do list when working people up for autoimmune disease, and it will be now, and certainly a question to ask your athletes who are saying, I'm just starting to get problems or I'm talking to my doctor about uh, autoimmune disease. Yeah, we need to be just saying to them, are you taking your vitamin D supplements? Ask your doctor to get that, uh, that added on to your blood profile. Right, and the next one uh, was called Six days of low carbohydrate, not energy Availability alters the iron and immune response to exercise in elite athletes. Uh, And this was by uh, kind of the uh, Aussie group uh, led by first author McKay, final author Burke. Um, I found this the hardest one to work through, Um, again, because you you were very aware that the person who's the final author has also published almost everything else that you've read on the subject, um, but also aware that 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 does there is a sort of strong viewpoint coming out from the research group. so it's uh, it was a short intervention, and I struggled to find much history on the subjects who were sort of twenty eight uh, elite male race walkers, and they talked about where they would fall in how, because I've been called elite, and we were talking about this last time, and what is elite. Um, And and certainly they wouldn't all have met the elite profile, I think, based on that recent uh, Stellendorf article. But they gave an idea of what their training um, or what their performance background was. But they didn't really talk about their past training. And I think anything where you're talking about low-carbohydrate interventions, if you're not talking about what they what their training regimes have been in the past and how much sort of low carbohydrate or fasted training they've done i mean if someone's done 15 years of fasted training they're not going to be doing the, having the same response as someone who has never done any fasted training now that doesn't matter if your numbers are really high but if you've only got 28 it really does matter so, so that was the first bit uh, that uh, I sort of found hard to get past. Um, and then the next bit was the markers of blood that they chose. And again, uh, you'd, uh, maybe I'll find something um, from the group coming soon that, that kind of maybe explains some of them. Um, the first one was, was ferritin for iron levels. We don't like ferritin for iron levels. Why not use something like soluble transferrin receptors? So ferritin is what's called an acute phase response um, marker. So any inflammation in the body will cause ferritin to rise. So if you're doing an intervention, especially one that from the look of it might have different inflammatory impacts on people because doing hard or doing fasted training as opposed to very high carbohydrate training. Or let me let me rephrase that: doing the same training at high carbohydrate energy availability or low carbohydrate. In my experience, and in my athletes' experience, is a very different um, training session. So. Of course, it's going to have a different impact on the body. In which case, surely the ferritin responses must be different. And what's that got to do with iron? Is that not just a marker of inflammation? Um. And the next one was they they use hepcidin and, and IL six, uh, which again is it, it, I struggled a little bit with because we know so. As far as iron, we know there's this link to obesity and inflammation just in iron levels in general. And then ferritin, apart from that, is also a sort of uh, acute phase response marker. So what are we trying to show by talking about the iron levels here? How do we pull that apart from just normal inflammation? Uh, and then... You want they want to look at uh, IL six and hepcidin. I mean, but we know IL six as during endurance exercise, um, IL six impacts kind of liver glucose, muscle glucose take free fasciated acid and. The IL six response is thought to be linked to the how much sort of prevailing carbohydrate availability there is, and it's exaggerated in glycogen depleted states. Now, I understand the question of well, its a bit chicken and egg. Is that is that exaggerated response due to inflammation? Is it just a just a Kind of chemical reaction, it will be higher if the carbohydrate availability is lower. Um, but with all those kind of questions, how th- the, this study from Burke uh, have just said, no, we're not interested in that, we're just purely using this as a marker for inflammation. And the conclusion we'll make is that low carbohydrate trained athletes who have a higher response in IL 6 and hepcidin must be having more inflammation uh It seems. Uh, I don't. You can't make. How can you make that conclusion when there's all these other factors and confounding factors linking in? Uh, it's. I it didn't feel good enough, but I'd be very open to anyone explaining it to me who who has a better grasp of it. Yeah. So um, the last one that we're going to go through. Oh, last last but one. Um, was actually just touching on uh, an article which I've always really liked and just wanted to to end on a, a sort of a happy high with it. It's called Increased Frequency of Intentional Weight Loss Associated with Reduced Mortality, a Prospective Cohort Analysis. Um, and it was looking at, uh, it was a cohort study using data claimed from six American states. And, and the take-home for me it, I'll just turn to the uh, the bit with it on. Is as compared with individuals who had never intentionally lost at least five pounds, individuals who had eleven plus attempts over twenty years had a twelve percent lower risk of death. I mean that's just lovely. So we all fail at everything. We all lose motivation. We're all weak. We're all human. Um, that actually for improving your health the important thing is not that you're successful it's that you give it a go um, which I think is a very strong thing for for many of our patients to take away um, and also something I like to say to sort of athletes that have maybe let themselves go a little bit as they've aged actually look it doesn't matter the fact that you've Been fit in the past, the fact that you know how to lose the weight and hopefully, when you leave here, you'll give it another go. It doesn't matter if it then slips back. You're still going to be getting this improvement in mortality. Right. Um, Oh, yeah, one last one just to to comment on, which is, uh, it kind of makes a bit of a mockery of everything to do with sort of trials and data and reading through journals. So it was just a little note... um, Summarizing a article, a discussion in Nature, looking back at a kind of article in Anesthesia about um, it scrutinised the individual patient data in one hundred and fifty randomised control trials submitted for publication to their their journal. Um, they found that nearly half contained false data when the data was scrutinised by the team. So, and now. These are ones submitted, not accepted. So partly that's just a, well, yeah, this is why we have the peer review process to to stop ones that are uh, maybe uh, not high enough standard or clearly have falsified data um, getting published. But my goodness, there's probably a lot of uh, false data that creeps through and is pushed through, and uh, what can you do about it? You You can just sit there and say, well... I'll have to take everything with a bit of a pinch of salt. What I think most of us end up doing is we, we more and more look at the final authors and, and where the group's based and, and think, well, actually, I, I, I've spent several years reading stuff from him. So actually, it's probably going to be a good article. Um, it's, they're not going to cheat, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, So. Uh, meant to finish on a high with the uh, that lovely one about uh, uh, sort of the the impact of just being being a trier uh, but then we slipped onto the fact that all data is falsified hope you have a super day and get some great exercise in uh, and it's a little bit drier with you than it is here with me goodbye